Hey, good morning. Why don't you grab your Bibles? Go to Second Peter chapter two, and we're going to continue in our study of of Second Peter. Uh, my name's Frank. Uh, I'm the senior pastor here at Uniontown Bible Church. Thankful that you are joining us this morning. Uh, just a couple of words at the onset. My job, my responsibility on Sunday morning as I open the Word, uh, whether it be here on campus or here with you online, um, is to, um, I'll use a very pastory term, to feed the sheep. Okay, to, to feed the sheep. Uh, but another job that I have uh, is to warn the sheep. Now, it's like with my kids. I would far rather... Um, feed them. I'd, I'd rather be sitting around eating pizza, joking with them, than sitting down with them and warning them about some of the friends that they have. Uh, um, like, but, but he's cute. Yeah, that's that's fine. I don't care if he's cute. She's hot. Yep. So's hell. Run away. Okay. So I'd I'd rather <laughs> sit and enjoy pizza than have to offer those warnings to them. But here um, we find ourselves in another passage again, preaching through the book of Second Peter. God wrote it, so it's our message for today. Um, Another passage filled with warnings, and so we're going to look at the warnings. We're going to look at the warnings that Peter gives us about false teachers, and we're going to look at how those warnings really do apply to you and I uh, today. So let's start reading Second Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 10, right in the middle, because that's where the sentence begins. It says this, bold, arrogant people, talking about the false teachers. They're not afraid to slander the glorious ones. However, angels who are greater in might and power don't bring a slanderous charge against them before the Lord. But these people, these people are like irrational animals, creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed, slander what they don't understand, and in their destruction they too will be destroyed. They'll be paid back with harm for the harm they've done. They consider it a pleasure to carouse in broad daylight, their spots and blemishes delighting in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery and never stop looking for sin. They seduce unstable people and have hearts trained in greed, children under a curse. They've gone astray by abandoning the straight path. They have followed the path of Balaam, the son of Bozor, who loved the wages of wickedness, but received a rebuke for his lawlessness. That rebuke was a speechless donkey speaking with the human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These people are springs without water, mists driven by a storm. The gloom of darkness has been reserved for them. For by uttering boastful, empty words, they seduce with fleshly desires and debauchery people who have barely escaped from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption, since people are enslaved to whatever defeats them. For if having escaped the world's impurity through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in these things and defeated The last state is worse for them than the first. For it would have been been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy command delivered to them. It has happened to them according to the proverb, the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a washed sow returns to wallowing in the mud. Um... So, so let's begin right at the beginning there, verse 10. What Peter's going to do is he's going to give us some of the characteristics of a false prophet, some of the characteristics of a, of a false teacher that we need to be aware of. 
And he begins by saying that these people are bold and they are arrogant, so much so they slander the glorious ones, verse 10, even though those glorious ones, the angels, don't bring a slanderous charge against them. So let me, let me back up to slander. So these false teachers are slandering the glorious ones. That the slander is to humiliate, to speak down on, to exercise presumed authority over. So, so these false teachers are so arrogant, so bold, that, that they attempt to boss the angels around, calling on them to do their bidding. Um, but the Bible doesn't per- give us permission or, or doesn't give us precedent to contact angels from ourselves. The, the angels don't do our bidding. The angels have always done the bidding of God. But in their arrogance, the false teachers try to demonstrate an authority that isn't theirs. And the angels, who, who Psalm 8 tells us, we have been created a little lower than the angels, so you do the reverse math, and they are a little higher than us. The angels, in a higher position than, than humanity, they don't dare. They know better to do the same thing to, to mankind. But in the arrogance of the false teachers, they're quick to run to those things. Verse 12, these people are like irrational animals. They, they're, 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 they slander what they don't understand. To be irrational means to be absurd, lacking the reason, uh, the ability to reason. And when he says they mock what they don't understand, they slander what they don't understand. So instead of demonstrating a humility, uh, they demonstrate an arrogance. They they mock it, and that can be seen today or around us. As you just you just examine the culture um, as it relates to the Word of God. When people don't understand it, what they do is they they mock it. The, the, the false teachers will decry doctrine as something that divides us, and they will, they will mock foundational concepts in Scripture, one of which being the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That, that's very simply that Jesus Christ died in our place. He became sin, the one who knew no sin, that we might be found the righteousness of God in him. Okay, So that's, that's the substitutionary atonement. There's an author named Steve Chalk who wrote a book that said the substitutionary atonement, that makes no sense. Why would God allow his son to be punished for something he didn't even do? That's nothing short of cosmic child abuse. That, that, that's, that's, that's called mocking what he doesn't understand. So they, they decry doctrine that way. They deny difficulty in the lives of, of those who follow God. Christ, because they don't understand how difficulty fits into the plan of God. After all, why would God allow a difficulty into the life of a child of God? No, no, no. So what they would do then is take things like difficulty, and the false teachers will twist it and say, there's no trials, there's no temptations, there's no difficulties in your life. No, you just need to change your thinking. And, and folks who teach that have written books that have quotes like this from them. Your life will always follow your thoughts. If you always think positive, you'll be positive. The more you say what God says, the more you'll experience his best. Remember to speak life over your situation today. Ultimately, what this individual is saying is hocus pocus, abracadabra, and everything's going to be okay. No, no, see, that's not how difficulties work in our lives. That's not the purpose of trials or difficulties. There's, there are trials, difficulties, temptations in our life that allow us the opportunity to lean on God in ways we haven't before, not to deny their very existence. These false teachers find it a pleasure, verse 13, to carouse in broad daylight. Something we talked about last week, to carouse. That's the, the picture of sensuality or depravity. They don't discipline themselves no matter who is watching. 
So they, they are unashamed to have their voices heard. They're unashamed to do these things in front of people. After all, who's going to stop me? They're bold and arrogant. Or who do you think you are to, to, to tell me to stop? Verse 13 continues, their spots and blemishes, they delight in their deceptions. So, so their primary source of wisdom that they are offering in their false teaching is themselves. They delight in their deceptions. So they take joy in selling their latest book to you. They take delight in this new teaching that they are focused on. They, many of them even speak about the latest prophecy that has been given to them to share with you. You want to see those, you just go on YouTube and most of them are labeled as urgent prophecy. What, they've say, what they're saying now is supposed to be elevated above what has been said for thousands of years. They're bold, they're arrogant, they delight in their deceit. Verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery that never stop looking for sin. They have this steady appetite for unfaithfulness towards God. Now this could be sexual unfaithfulness, but it's probably better understood as the, the picture of adultery from the Old Testament, which is idolatry. They continue to chase the idols that surround them. They continue to put forward idols for other people to pursue with them. And for many of them, the idols are based in their, their relentless pursuit of what is next for them. Verse 14 again, it says, For they have hearts trained in greed. That greed isn't necessarily financial. It can be power, it can be position, it can be influence, but, but it's whatever is next for them. They, they're much like, and he uses the illustration here, the prophet Balaam. It's found in the book of Numbers, um, chapters 20, 22, 24, somewhere right in there. Sorry, the, the exact reference escapes me. I apologize. But, but the idea of Balaam is he followed the path, um, the, 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 the path of wages of wickedness. Um, it, it's so fascinating to me. Balak comes to Balaam and says, would you curse the people of God for me? And Balaam's response is, right, I, I can only say what God's told me to say. I, I can't speak a curse against them if God wants blessing. And then Balak says, well, here are some things. And he dumps wealth on them. So you almost get the picture of Balaam saying, I can, cannot speak contrary to God. I can only speak what he says. You're willing to pay me how much? Let me think about it. And, and Balaam on his way to do the bidding of this evil king and curse the people of God is riding on his donkey and you have this odd interaction where the donkey keeps going off the road or pins Balaam up against the wall and refuses to go forward. And, and, and Balaam gets off the donkey and begins to beat it and call it stupid. And then you just get moving. Why are you such a stubborn animal? And the donkey turns and looks at Balaam and says, Stop hitting me. Why are you doing this? Um, and what Peter says is, in essence, the donkey had more of an understanding and a better grasp on things than the prophet Balaam did. And, and Balaam's eyes were opened, and what he saw was there was certain judgment just in front of him that the donkey had been stopping short of because the donkey was aware. And had he continued, he would have met judgment. Now, there, there will be judgment for the false teachers. It says in verse 12, their destruction, they too will be destroyed. They'll be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. God will hold them accountable. Verse 9 from last week, he even said that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Judgment is certainly coming. God is not going to stand oddly by his people are snagged by the, the false teachers. Who are these people 
who are snagged by the false teachers. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> um, verse 14, um, it says that these are, uh, they seduce unstable people. Verse 18 says they seduce people who have barely escaped. So let me help explain. So seduce means to lure, to entice. It's, it's what you would use on your fishing hook to catch a fish. And, and the people that the false teachers are seducing are called unstable. That means unsteady. They're, they're still learning how to walk, right? Think, think about a toddler who's just learning to walk where their head is enormous, their body is tiny, and wherever their head leans, their body follows. They're, they're still, in the truest sense of the form, toddling. <laughs> um, that's who he's talking about. They're unstable. People who have barely escaped. People who had been teetering on the edge of danger but had been rescued from that. So, so who are these people? Well, they're most certainly new believers. There's no question he's talking about new believers, those who are immature in their faith because they've had a lack of time to grow. They haven't had the opportunity to grow, so they're chronologically immature. Um, and that's all of us at some point, isn't it? But then the, 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 the ones who should know better, those who have barely escaped, the ones who are, should know better, but they're immature in their faith because of a lack of commitment to grow. They're, they're malnourished in their maturity, but it's their own fault. That's most of us, isn't it? This is talking about those of us who are in fear about one thing or another, who are, are vulnerable to the attack of the enemy. And so what the enemy does is he uses these false teachers to place before us the idols that are going to grab our attention and distract us from what is most important. And the problem is, is that when the false teachers put these in front of us and we chase after these idols, there are horrible horrible consequences. Verse 17, it says they're, they're like the springs without water or mists driven by a storm. So, so picture for, from it being in a desert and just being parched, right? I mean, you've all, you've all experienced that I am, I'm really thirsty, right? And the dry mouth and your lips are starting to crack. But, but imagine that times 10, you are that thirsty and you, you just need to find water. In the distance, you, you see what looks to be a, a spring, and, and what you do is you, you just run. <laughs> You're going as fast and hard after that spring as you possibly can. But when you get there, your hope turns to dust because the spring is dry. He says it's, it's like being in a drought where you, you desperately need the rain because your crops are just drying up. Your well is going dry. But in the distance, you see these big, billowing, tall clouds that are just growing and, and reproducing on top of each other. And it's beginning to come towards you. This, this storm is approaching you. You can feel the wind coming off of it. And it finally gets to you, but it's just wind and clouds. No rain. That's what he's talking about here in verse 17. He's talking about that spring without water. He's talking about that, that uh, mist with the clouds being driven by the storm but not bringing any, any rain. That's what it's like to pursue the teaching of false teachers and the idols that they put out there for you to pursue. They're giving you a promise, but there's, there's nothing there. Verse 18 says there's, they're uttering boastful, empty words. They may sound good, but they're powerless to bring about anything that has hope. They, they promise them freedom. This is a key verse here in verse 19. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are the slaves of corruption since people are enslaved to whatever defeats them. 
There's a promise of deliverance. If you just grasp onto this as hope, there's this this hope of freedom. I'm I'm offering you this this freedom. And when the vulnerable, when we reach for that freedom, instead of experiencing the freedom that has been promised to us, what happens is in our extension of our arms, as we reach for that freedom, in essence, as we reach for that idol, there's a new set of handcuffs that are slapped on us. And we become enslaved. And Peter makes this controversial and yet not controversial comment. I'm going to explain it in verse 21. It would have been better for them to not have known. Peter's saying, a false hope is worse than no hope at all. So, so think about it this way. So let me, my own illustration, and then I'll use Peter's. It's better <clears throat> to have never used a snowblower than to have used one and then have to go back to using a shovel, right? It, it's better to, to have never experienced and not know the ease with which the, the snowblower removes the snow versus the effort and agony that it is to use the shovel as you're digging out. It's, it's better to have never tasted the joy, the, the elation of the snowblower. <laughs> That's Peter's point. It, it makes you miserable when you grab the shovel the next time knowing that the snowblower is out there and it exists. And that's what he says here. It's better to to have never experienced bathing in the natural springs, the warm natural springs of water, if if you're simply going to return to to, to wallow in the mud. It's it's better to have never experienced the the incredible taste of a steak that is done medium rare, cooked to perfection, seasoned just right, hot off the grill. It's better to have never tasted that than to have tasted it. And yet now you're feasting on, excuse me, but he says it, vomit. There's nothing more miserable than the believer who has experienced the blessing and goodness of God but has walked away from that and is now trying to replace it with something else. They are, in fact, miserable. And that's what happens when you chase idols. Now, I know some people are like, idols, I don't have a shrine in my backyard. I know, but chasing an idol means that you are depending on anyone or anything else to give you hope. It, it, it means you think that there is someone or something out there that is equipped to handle your needs and it's not God. It, it means that you have you've chosen to believe the lie of Satan that there is true hope, true satisfaction, true security, true freedom anywhere but from God. No matter no matter what situation you find yourself in, as soon as that happens, you are guilty of chasing an idol. But 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 I I didn't didn't see that coming. Well, of course you didn't see it coming. They, they, these aren't people that you would look at, right? These false teachers aren't people you would look at and be like, that's a wolf. Okay, that, that's, it says that they, they're really nice people. They, verse 13, that though there are spots and blemishes and they delight in their own deceptions, they, they're doing that while they feast with you. So you're not going to be like, I think, and a wolf's not going to walk up with a name tag. Hello, I'm a wolf. <laughs> He's not going to come right out and introduce himself. So there's um, these great theologians of the 19th century. Uh, their name were the Brothers Grimm. And they told us uh, the, how a wolf works, Right? He dresses up like Granny and pulls the covers up so that when Little Red Riding Hood comes in, it takes her a little bit until she starts to recognize, wow, 
what huge ears you have, Grandma, which is, she's a rude little girl, nonetheless, but, but the wolf isn't going to come right out and introduce himself as a wolf. He's going to disguise himself. And, and here's what even makes it more complicated. They're actually talking about good things. These idols that they're chasing, these idols that they're placing before you aren't necessarily these Buddhas, right? They're good things. That's what makes them such effective distractions that the enemy uses to keep us from being fixated on what we're supposed to be fixated on. Chasing idols means you have taken a good thing that God has given to you and you've put it in a place it doesn't belong. You've elevated it to a place it was never intended to be. And and listen, please understand, Satan isn't a moron. Most idols are are introduced to people in their most vulnerable of situations. So, So for example, I am not, and some may be, and, and, and I'm not making light of it. I'm just talking about myself personally. I'm not going to be tempted by black tar heroin. I, it's, just, it's just not this thing inside of me that I, I trend towards, or I'm going to place that in front of me like, there it is. No, no, no. But I'm certainly going to be tempted to lean on Stephanie to give me the fulfillment that only God can bring me. And Satan knows that. He knows that. So, so listen, many of us who are watching this are guilty of idolizing good things. And, and, and some of us are sitting in this room like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So let me, let me just blow through a few of them. Our culture is jam-packed with them. I, I could go on for hours. I won't. I'll try not to, I say. <laughs> um, so some of the, the idols of the day are good causes. Um, so, for example, environmentalism. It's a great cause. What we should, God has given us and entrusted us this, this earth. We should take care of it. However, the way it's demonstrated itself is now it has become such an idol that you have to make a choice when you go to a lot of grocery stores. Are you going to use the gopher-friendly, eco-sensitive bag? Or are you going to pay the sin tax if you use paper or plastic because those things are damaging the habitats of those gophers? And I only joke a little, Right? Um, so those, those good causes can become our idols. Um, our hobbies, the things we enjoy to, to relax to, can become idols. The, the Super Bowl tonight, I'm telling you right now, that is a worship event. I mean, you have Judas, Tom Brady, and, and Rob Gronkowski. I believe he's Judas part two. You have both of those on the Buccaneers. Um, you've got, <laughs> but what you do, you have this worship event where you cheer for your holy ones and you boo the demons. And you watch this entire thing unfold before you, and it does. It becomes this idol for you. So many of you men who watch this, you, you I'll say can't, even though I think some of it's won't. But you can't memorize scripture. But right now, you could tell me how many yards Lamar Jackson averaged per pass attempt in man-to-man coverage in night games versus day games. But you can't memorize scripture. It's an idol. It's, it's a good thing. It's just taken its wrong place in the chain on our lives. Another idol, political party. Can you actually idolize a candidate? You, you absolutely can. Here's, here's some questions you need to ask yourself. If you believe that God is only happy with your particular candidate, that, that's, that means you have a twisted view on how things work. <laughs> if, if you feel like you need to defend your candidate every time somebody mentions their name, if you are filled with uncontrollable emotion and outrage at the thought of your candidate losing, you've taken a good thing. We should be interested in some of those things. 
but we should never put it in that seat on the bus. Appearance and health, uh, what a particular diet that you follow. Man, it has done great things for you, but, but it can become an idol. When it becomes the determining factor of what friends you choose, what activities you go to, what investments you make, when it, when it affects the way you look at other people's choices. And, and, and <laughs> I'm going to say this, and, and hopefully this will protect me from any comments, but um, there was a time where I was doing something in a message and I mentioned the fact that I love white rice and my wife was sitting over here on the right hand side and, and she was in the front row and she was like, oh no. <laughs> I was like, I'm not sure what that was all about. Well, I found out afterwards one of the particular strains of diet in our church really speaks against white rice, that type of grain and uh, starch and bleach or something. I don't know what it is. But, but basically you would have thought that I stood in the pulpit and announced to the congregation, I have committed murder. Because they've elevated that diet to such a level. So you just got to be careful and cautious there. Don't, don't put it in the wrong seat. It's a good thing. But keep it in perspective and don't make it most important. Religious performance. This rigid adherence to these self-imposed rules. Also known as legalism. So when that starts to get challenged and you start to realize it is... When COVID forces us to sit at home for months or a snowstorm forces us to make a change in our service schedule and I'm not able to do those things and I don't get my check mark, I am so out of control. Well, perhaps it's because you've elevated something into a wrong position. And please understand, it's again, it's a good thing. We want you here. We want you to attend. But don't allow that to become the most important our children. When the success uh, of our kids, what schools they get into, what, what, what activities they have achieved in, what uh, scholarships they have received, what's, what, um, what, what amazing accomplishments they have done, who they know, uh, how they've been able to network through things, when those things become an all-consuming idol in our lives, it, it can be seen by the fact that it's all we can talk about. Every conversation goes to that. It's, it's all we can think about. Our entire schedule rotates around what little Johnny is going to do today um, as he accomplishes wonderful things in the field of athletics as an eight-year-old t-ball player. What we've done is we've taken those children, we've made them an idol. They're good things. We love our kids. We should serve our children. But we should never put them in that position of an idol, and I'll explain why in a minute, even though I think it's obvious. Finally, the last one I'll mention is our marriage. Again, good thing, wonderful thing. But when the attention and the acceptance you receive from your spouse every day becomes where you find your value, your worth, your purpose, you are destined for failure because only Jesus can carry that weight. They can't. So, so what's the danger? I, I kind of just started in on that one. They, they, when, when you um, place an idol in your life, that idol will fail. Because they were never intended to fill that role, so they can't be the solution that you're looking for. And so what happens is when you put that much importance, that much weight on them, it crushes them. And it disappoints you, ultimately. So your idols are going to fail, so that's part of the danger. Another danger is your idol demands absolute loyalty. So you've got to demonize things on the other side of your idol. And, and I'll use a goofy illustration to hopefully drive that home. There is nothing more um, divisive uh, than having two family members who cheer for two different NFC East teams. 
and you may not know anything about football, but it's the clearest illustration. My wife is a diehard Eagles fan. She grew up as an Eagles fan. She remains an Eagles fan. You have four teams in the NFC East. You have the Washington football team, the New York Giants, the Dallas Cowboys, and the Philadelphia Eagles. My wife really does not like the New York Giants or the Washington football team. However, it is a whole nother level when you talk about the Dallas Cowboys. If you are a good Eagles fan, you despise the Dallas Cowboys. If you're a good Boston Red Sox fan, you despise the New York Yankees, right? So, so, so there's, there's that, that whole idea, even in, in, in our idol worship. So again, let's go back to the, um, I don't know, let me pick one, the, the political party, even though it's the most toxic, it actually is the clearest one. If I have a candidate who I have idolized, then I just tear down everybody else besides that one. Um, and even in that appearance and health with the different diets, if I had this diet that has worked for me and has brought me um, great energy and, and good health, and then somebody's using a different one, I'd be like, oh, they obviously don't know. Uh, and, and that becomes a huge, huge problem. I'm, I'm running out of time here, so i got to uh, keep this moving. Another danger is that um, the idol will demand sacrifice. And so it will demand a financial sacrifice, emotional sacrifice, and relational sacrifice. Going back to that demonization thing, you end up destroying relationships that you have, which you shouldn't. And worst case, it makes Jesus an idol provider. He becomes this this cosmic vending machine that will provide the things we want, like a good job, a great marriage, good kids, a, a family to be jealous for, a salary we want. So, so what we're saying is, Jesus, satisfy me. <laughs> would you would you satisfy me? When we don't get we what we want, we find ourselves disappointed in Him. Listen, freedom isn't found in Jesus satisfying me. Freedom is found in the fact that Jesus has satisfied God for me. All this let's talk about idolatry. Let me let me let me end it here. Throughout the Old Testament the people of God had had wandering eyes and feet that ran towards idols. We can agree to that. And in the Old Testament as as prophets spoke about idolatry, it would be described as as adultery. As this marital unfaithfulness, like Israel was was cheating on God. So there's a number of Jewish philosophers who have really wrestled with that metaphor. Here's why. They, they, they understand the picture, but then they get to the books of Hosea um, and Jeremiah in particular. And, and it says that, that God calls his children adulterers. They have cheated on him. They have been unfaithful to him. So he calls them adulterers and he says, I'm going to divorce you and then I'm going to bring you back to me. Now they wrestle with that metaphor <laughs> because in the Old Testament, the penalty for adultery wasn't divorce. It was death. And so God was violating his own rules, so they can't wrap their heads around it. So what they do is they decide, like any metaphor, it just breaks down right there. My fellow idolaters, those of us who have wandered far from the God who has rescued us, let me give you good news. God knew exactly what he was saying. The penalty for our spiritual adultery is, in fact, death. But that penalty that we deserve was paid for in full by Jesus Christ, so we can now return to God. See, freedom is found in Jesus satisfying God for me.
And anything that you have made an idol in your life will eventually pass. You will be overlooking it in its grave. And you have to ask yourself, now how is it going to help me? The good news of Jesus Christ is that he overcame his grave. He's worthy of our trust, of our affection, and our total allegiance, unlike any other. I mean, where are you fixing your eyes? In this season, are you enslaved to one of those idols or another? And let me encourage you, repent. Repent, own your sin for what it is, a rebellion against God, an unfaithfulness to the God who saved you. And return. Because our Father's waiting. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your love. I ask, Father, that you would grant us um, real understanding of what it means to pursue you. Lord, help us to shed these idols. Help us to walk away from these idols. May they not control us. We thank you for what Christ has done for us. We thank you that while all idols will rest in the grave someday, that your grave is empty. For it's in Jesus' wonderful risen name I pray. Amen.